name's Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist, and I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Gubby Gubby people, who are the traditional custodians of the land and waterways where I live on the Sunshine Coast. And I'd like to acknowledge all First Nation people in Australia and around the world and the wisdom they share with us at this time on the planet. Okay. I'm joining you today for the third instalment of my book, Brokenheartedness Towards Love in Professional Practice. This book uh, is my offering for understanding the pain and trauma and distress on the planet in its myriad forms at this time as as I've come to understand it through my life um, and particularly through my professional working life. And in all of this, looking to both provide a socio-political analysis of violence, lovelessness and eco-injustice, which includes all types of injustice, as part of understanding what's needed to build a theory of love which can guide us in how to respond to what I think is the big issue in our lived experience at this time, that is brokenheartedness, brokenheartedness of people, of other animals and of nature. And, of course, it takes many forms. So this is, as I was saying, the third section of mostly focusing on reading uh, from the book, with just an occasional added commentary. So far in the first two sessions uh, that you'll find on Substack uh, is the chapter on lovelessness, which I think is a, a concept that is really useful for understanding how in conditions and situations where beings are dehumanised or deanimalized or devalued in some way, that lovelessness can be occurring and that in those kind of situations violence and injustice become it becomes a breeding ground for violence or an injustice depending on the situation um, and becomes in a vicious circle where the violence and injustice in its different forms can deepen senses of lovelessness and all that goes with that so this is part of the ideas that I'm playing with to understand why a theory of love is needed at this time. So coming now to chapter two, and it's actually quite a long chapter, so I've made the decision to not read every single section of the chapter. And just to, it's on violence, and just to say that the section I'll leave out is probably interesting to some people but not to everybody in the, in the way that what I actually do share will be generally interesting and just to flag because you may now be really interested what is the bit that I'm leaving out um, it is a section on how organizational violence um, happens in places where you might least expect it including universities and of course I'm talking about universities in that section because this has been my lived experience Okay, um, so, so I'm sorry if you're really hoping to hear about that um, and at another time I can perhaps provide that reading. I just didn't want the chapter on violence to go on too long because ultimately um, the whole book is an elaboration and working with this concept. It's not only in this chapter, okay, because the answer to violence in a broad sense is both love, nonviolence and justice. Anyway, just to say. Sorry about not giving you the whole chapter, but I hope what I share with you has, has some interest to you. So here we go. 
Also, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. This is on page 22. There's nothing like growing up in a big family to know how loveless and competitive people can get. There often wasn't enough of the basic necessities, let alone treats. We were kids grabbing at the last piece of bread or lolly from the jar. As one of the older ones, I was not trying to be mean to a little brother or sister, but I was bigger and I could boss them around. Looking out for myself, even as a kid, didn't go down too well. It caused lots of upsets between my siblings and I. Multiply this looking out for yourself behaviour by seven other siblings and it was often a very confusing, chaotic situation. Trying to get my own needs met was seen as being selfish. The boys usually won if it came to a fight. If mum was nearby, we would all get a slap and sent outside. Sometimes it would be more than a slap. Sometimes it was a belting. Mum used an actual black belt with buckles on it that could cause welts on bare skin. I was always outraged when I was belted. Innocent or not, even just standing in the wrong place, too close to the incident, we were all blamed. We didn't learn how to resolve our differences and resentments brewed until the next altercation. I am sure I was mean and competitive with my siblings, but sometimes my conscience would kick in and I would share my toys or clothes or make sure my brothers and sisters had enough food. We all would have liked a bit more of everything. We stuck together in a fashion as we only had each other. But I did see that some members of the family got more of some things. This unfairness tended to be related to age. The older kids got the new clothes and younger ones got the hand-me-downs. It was always re also related to the gender of us all. The boys got more meat on their plates than the girls. Of course, Dad always had a full plate of food. Mum sometimes just picked at the leftovers if there were any. This was just normal in our family. It wasn't talked about as being mean or competitive or unfair, but that is what was happening. It was often a struggle for survival against my siblings. When we hurt each other, it was very serious. It was compounded by our parents' use of violence against us. It wasn't called violence back then. It was seen as disciplining naughty children. We were all locked into domestic violence by our father. Some of us weren't always kept safe and cared for by our parents. We weren't always able to keep ourselves safe and care for each other. But we did it enough. We all survived. We all continued to look out for each other decades later. But the scars sit heavily with some of us. Heartache and lovelessness were the result of violence that was normalised and woven through all our relationships. Family situations can reflect the prevailing norms of the time and can be a training ground for workplace violence where workers treat each other badly. Violence between staff can be due to competition for a job or a promotion, for the favours of the boss or for being well-liked. When staff are treated unfairly, individually or as a group, it can create a volatile and unsafe environment. 
when managers act unsafely and unfairly towards subordinate staff, it can create competition for survival, impacts on mental health and impacts on staff's ability to do their jobs properly. I have seen this cascading of lovelessness from dominant members of work hierarchies down to lower level staff who then pass the uncaring on to clients who are seeking help. It can become an insidious workplace as staff experience divided loyalties and can wittingly or naively side with management against the unfavoured workmate. In such situations, good people who are witnessing what is happening can get targeted if they stand up for others. Throughout my social work career, I have worked in various human service organisations that were complex systems of people, processes and policies. For many years, I did not have a language for it. Without a language for the hurt and harm I witnessed, I felt, I felt powerless to do anything about unsafety in my workplaces. Too often my focus was drawn away from client care in order to survive or help others survive in hostile work environments. As a social worker, the places where I tried to help clients were places that needed help themselves. In these kinds of work contexts, it made my job of caring for clients so much harder. Social workers learn about active listening and problem solving with clients in our professional education. We are taught effective helping becomes possible through the quality of the relationship we form with our clients. I did not learn much about the organisational setting of social work. But as a child, I did learn about violence in the family system. There's a subheading now, violence in dominance hierarchies. Growing up, we always had a chook pen in the backyard behind the vegetable garden. It was usually quite a big space and the chooks gave us plenty of eggs over the years. I didn't take much notice of them when I'd scurry into the pen to feed them and collect the eggs. But from time to time, I'd notice one chook, often by themselves, looking very bedraggled and balding in a patchy kind of way. Sometimes I'd see other chooks pecking at them, and I'd shoo the attacking chooks away. But it didn't seem to stop them. Mostly, though, I enjoyed the chooks and their gentle and friendly ways towards me. Of course, the rooster was the biggest and noisiest of them all. He was the most beautiful as well, with a plume of coloured tail feathers. I also became aware that some chooks were more likely to get the best morsels of scraps we throw over the fence, and others always missed out. As a child, I didn't think much about how some chooks got pecked and hurt. They were just doing their own chook thing to my child's way of seeing things. I see now that their chook pen was definitely a closed society of unfree members. The fate of being eventually killed overshadowed the way the chooks treated each other. Their pecking behaviour and unfreedom due to being caged was not a life-threatening issue, usually, until a more dominant actor stepped in to catch one to feed the human family. Being pecked or killed as a chook 
being a witness to domestic violence as a child and being a witness to workplace unfairness as a social worker, while very different phenomena and experiences all have one thing in common, violence. This is about the use of power to harm others. At work, violence can take many forms, such as gossiping, bullying, harassment and other microaggressions. It can also include physical assault or threats of harm. The pecking order in the chookyard mirrors dominance hierarchies in human service organisations. The term pecking order was first coined by Thorleif Schilderup Ebe over 100 years ago. As a boy, he kept a diary of what he observed in his family's chicken pen. His close observations of chicken behaviour identified a pattern of some chickens being more dominant, which manifested as them pecking others. In turn, some chickens were more likely to be subordinated and get pecked. He, de- he developed his pecking order theory in his 20s, and it has been used to study all types of species in-group behaviour, including human systems. Any good theory helps you make sense of things that previously you may not have had words for. Watching how chooks in my backyard treated each other definitely revealed a pecking order. This understanding helped me make sense of power dynamics in my family and in many workplaces. Unequal relationships are the root cause of using power to hurt each other. Or others. Older sick chooks were pecked by younger healthy chooks. Parents instill fear in their children and silence them by raising them in a situation of domestic violence. Managers and work supervisors control troublesome colleagues by bullying them or letting others do the bullying and making the targeted colleagues the problem. The problem I have with pecking order theory is that it seems to be accepted as inevitable that social relations will organise in a pecking order where some people are dominant over others. I don't think violence is inevitable, but it is endemic in society. This does not make violence morally okay. Hierarchies do not need to involve unfair use of power. However, the inequality in relationships involved in any pecking order can create violence-prone situations. The less powerful in the pecking order are harmed by the most. The seeds and injustices planted in my childhood had immediate and ongoing implications for me as a social worker in professional settings. It certainly instilled in me an abiding scepticism of anyone in authority who tried to micromanage me or in any way treat me or others around me unfairly. This was aided and abetted by reading George Orwell's classic book, Animal Farm. He depicts in stark terms the misery for animals at being at the bottom of the pecking order for humans. Major, the wise old pig, has called the farmyard yard animals to a meeting in the barn to explain how miserable their lives are. This is directly due to the humans who take from them, don't treat them properly and work them into the ground until they die. 
The major continues on explaining how, in fact, there is plenty of food for everyone if the humans didn't steal it from them. Humans are unlike other animals in that they only consume, they don't produce. The answer to their misery, the major says, is to remove humans from the situation. Then they can be well-fed and free. However, the animal's subsequent revolt against the humans did not fundamentally change the power relationship dynamics of dominance and subordination. Orwell was warning against authoritarianism in political and social systems. It can take many forms and doesn't always declare itself. One form is the vertical and horizontal violence that can occur in workplaces where there are unequal relationships. Vertical violence refers to the manager's power and control over people lower down the hierarchy. Horizontal violence is power used to create harm between people on the same level of the hierarchy. Human-made organisations are highly sophisticated constructions of direct and indirect power relationships. The relationships are organised according to specialised roles and a hierarchy of responsibilities within a bounded organisational structure. These relationships can range from authoritarian with high levels of bullying and excluding to democratic and inclusive. Human service organisations are of particular interest to me as a social worker. The broad purpose of these types of organisations is to be of service to people by providing resources, information and assistance. This might seem like a self-evident statement, hardly worth saying. In my experience, many human service workplaces are virtually closed systems of workers acting with a complex mix of divided loyalties, tension between individual autonomy and the team, and trying to do more with limited resources. In the worst cases, workplaces are undeclared competitive, conflictual, and even vicious environments. When both, both vertical and horizontal violence is occurring, it can be a very unsafe place. But this underbelly reality is not always visible at the mundane level of day-to-day practice with clients. Iris Young writes about the respectability of professional workplaces, which can hide the violences that occur in the name of rationality and care. I would add that workplace violence in the human services is likely to be entrenched, normalised and hidden behind smiling faces and friendly greetings in passageways and tea rooms. The smiling faces of a colleague can hide the reality of the target being backstabbed and thus not seen. It is a classic symptom of horizontal violence. It involves gossiping, where some staff talk about another person in their absence in derogatory and judgmental ways. For the targeted person, there is no direct evidence of the backstabbing. Their workmates smile to their faces, yet the message is received. They are not favoured and not included in things that matter. The harm is multi-layered and over time destroys workplace cultures. To be of service to clients, workplace cultures need to be built on trust, goodwill and the ability to cooperate as a team. The next section is the one I was mentioning on 
organisational violence in universities, which I'm going to leave for now, because I actually want to share with you, um, I think, a more topical, more likely to be relevant to more listeners section called Organisational Violence in Total Institutions. This is on page 36. I've worked for many years as a mental health social worker. If being rational is a high ideal in universities, it has to be understood to be even more so in the mental health system. What counts as mental illness is typically defined by a lack of rationality. People experiencing psychosis are thought to have lost contact with reality and are not considered capable of making rational decisions. They are constructed as being irrational. One of the biggest taboos in society relates to a fear of losing rationality. This fear is especially so if you are a practitioner who is meant to help people who have mental illness. Practitioners are the same. Practitioners are the sane ones. Mental patients are the mad ones. Such is the dominant discourse in mental health workplaces where professional status is highly guarded and professional boundaries equally so. A mental health practitioner with a mental illness is deeply threatening to this pecking order of sanity. The very presence of patients grappling with mental health challenges is also deeply threatening. I began my social work career at an old hospital in Tasmania, and like many of the mental health hospitals in the 1970s, they were institutions. They had a prison-like feel and look about them. The Royal Derwent Hospital was built by convicts transported from Great Britain in the 1800s. It was a very austere building. It had large walls all around the perimeter guarding the multiple buildings inside the grounds. The walls had barbed wire around the top. For all the world it looked like a prison inside and people were treated like prisoners. I was a brand new social worker and had never actually been in a mental health facility of any sort. To go into such a devastating, horrific and distressing place and witness so much suffering and so much coercion and control shaped my whole life thereafter. At the time, it certainly left me feeling powerless and overwhelmed. It was so shocking the way staff were acting as if it was a normal day getting on with their jobs. I could hardly breathe in some of the wards where people spent their days shackled in chairs and some were strapped to beds in passageways. Many did not appear to be alive. They had a dead look in their eyes. From this early experience, I came to understand that staff can also become institutionalised. As part of this, they can be traumatised, even brutalised, if they are directly being violent towards very vulnerable inpatients. I felt like I escaped when the new deinstitutionalisation policies were implemented. The old institutions came to be seen as dangerous places and governments moved to close them down and provide community-based care. I was given the task of enabling some of the long-term patients to move into the community. This meant I was doing home visits and spared the distress of witnessing what was happening to the inpatients. But I was not spared the witnessing of a different sort of tragedy. 
the people who became ex-patients were so incapacitated from years, if not decades, of being extremely controlled. Their ability to make the simplest decision was often absent. As many reports have shown since that time, the problem was multi-layered, but in the main, the community was not resourced to care for people with complex disabilities. Many ex-patients became even more vulnerable to exploitation and lack of care. Thus, I did not really escape witnessing the human tragedy that was unfolding around me. To understand how violence occurs in a system that is meant to be caring and healing for people with mental illness, it is useful to think of it as a total institution. Goffman coined this term to refer to systems that operate according to their own logics and rules and as a closed circuit of relationships and responsibilities. In other words, mental health systems function to control threats to what counts as rationality and who is thereby valued in society. It does this by medicalising inequality, which involves stigmatising people from minority status groups with diagnoses and treatments at times against their wishes. Then, with the force of legislation, many less valued people, the insane ones, are controlled by the state. As a child, I had an insider view of one of the most powerful institutions in society, the family. Domestic violence was force, the force used to control undesirable family members. Hidden under this very impactful experience, there was a prejudice against children. We were not treated as people in our own right with views and interests that were of equal value to those of the adults. As a social worker, I had an insider view of a bigger, more powerful total institution, the mental health system. Legal violence and interpersonal violence are the interlinked forces used to control undesirable mental health patients that is hidden under these types patients, there continues to be a prejudice against mental health patients that is hidden under these types of violence. They are not treated as people in their own right with views and interests that are of equal value to those of the staff. Violence causes lovelessness. Violence is possible because the targeted people are dehumanised insofar as they are not deemed to be worthy of love. The mental health system is one of the most loveless places I have known. I believe this even though many good, kind people work in these places. The efforts to be good and kind to the impatients are swamped by the relentlessness of the violence. The next section is called Who Loves the Caregivers? Mental health practitioners are professional caregivers who have chosen their careers in order to help others. They represent the first layer of responsibility for patient care in the mental health system. I wasn't bullied when working in the mental health sector, but that does not mean I felt safe and respected by management. I do not recall a manager ever inquiring about my well-being or showing care towards me. If staff do not look out for each other and care for each other, 
the workplace culture can be very unsupportive and deteriorating, deteriorate into being uncaring. A prevalence of uncaring relationships can leave the workplace susceptible to unsafety. Thus, staff can feel uncared for by management and simultaneously be grappling with needing to be caring to patients. In providing this care, staff bear witness to much suffering and distress. Even in the best of possibilities, workplaces are typically impacted by the stress caused by practitioners witnessing the distress and trauma experienced by patients. There is therefore a need to care for practitioners so they can provide the best quality care possible to patients. Organisational violence is the undeclared normalised force used to control undesirable staff members. It is sometimes referred to as workplace violence or occupational violence. It creates unsafe workplaces and can undermine respect and care in the staff team. Bystanders witnessing a colleague being bullied can feel powerless and unsafe themselves. Many staff have seen a colleague try to advocate for a targeted peer only to be bullied themselves. I notice that when practitioners I work with experienced interpersonal violence and microaggressions in the workplace, it seriously impacted their mental health. In turn, their ability to care for patients was also compromised. When staff are unsafe, their ability to keep colleagues and patients safe is reduced or it takes inordinate amounts of emotional work to resist the harm and keep others safe. In violence-prone work contexts, it's even more important that practitioners obtain professional supervision to assist them in understanding work issues, complexities and challenges. I often provided supervision to colleagues and obtained it myself outside the workplace. Many staff do not receive professional supervision. They can work in quite isolated situations or amongst a large group of colleagues but are not able to obtain timely advice. The lack of support and not having anyone to listen to your work challenges is a less recognised form of neglect of duty of care to staff by managers. Many practitioners told me over the years how obtaining supervision helped them survive a hostile workplace and pull themselves from the brink of mental distress and suicide. Sometimes supervision is the only place where a practitioner can speak about unfairness and bullying. When practitioners' work performance or well-being is noticed as an issue, it can be the case that everyone in the workplace notices. Most onlookers in turn do not say anything to the person. It is usually responded to behind closed doors with the line manager in a one-on-one as-needed basis. This may not always go so well for the practitioner who can become very isolated. If a practitioner experiences mental health challenges, it is not readily acknowledged and it's been identified as a taboo area in the mental health sector. The taboo centres on the undesirability of one of our own having a mental illness. This is the belief that people without mental illness occupy professional roles to help people with a mental illness. Thus, if a practitioner becomes unwell, this is very threatening for other staff 
and the system more broadly. I have seen some clinical teams manage staff who are not coping by scapegoating them. Research has shown that practitioners in frontline jobs where there are emergency and life-threatening situations or trauma and loss are at high risk of health and mental health issues, including vicarious trauma. Thus, the risk for mental health practitioners is well known in the sector. It would suggest that a caring regard would be prioritised for a peer who is experiencing mental ill health. This is not always the case. Organisational violence is not unique to public mental health systems, as I've shown with the example of universities. It is, though, perhaps more confounding and dispiriting for the impacted individual to be working alongside highly skilled mental health practitioners. That is, practitioners understand how to respond to people grappling with mental ill health. However, they may avoid and otherwise not engage with a colleague about their well-being. In the nursing profession, this power dynamic is similar to bullying and is referred to as, as nurses eating their young. Giuseppe and colleagues explain that it's not about being cannibalistic, rather it is about bullying, with evidence that almost one-third of all nurses and two-thirds of new graduate nurses experience bullying. From what I have seen, the impact of being bullied at work is a serious form of violence which has a myriad of harmful impacts on individuals. These impacts are due to lovelessness. Love is needed to counter the violence. To be bullied by colleagues, your supervisor or others in the workplace can be heartbreaking. Bullying and the failure to provide a safe workplace constitutes unfair, unwelcome and illegal behaviour. It can continue and not be seen by others for years. It is an insidious and harmful experience when care, compassion and understanding is needed but is not received. Further, instead of receiving care, the worker can be bullied and perhaps out of fear for the repercussions be unable to name it. When impacted, an individual's ability to remain productive in their work is interlinked with being bullied. It can threaten their jobs and financial security. This can be extremely distressing, in part because poor work performance can hide the underlying issues of managers' lack of duty of care and the presence of bullying. Feeling unfairly treated was a common theme of colleague stories that I heard during my time in the mental health services. Yet it tended to be muted because people blamed themselves and not the system or the powerful people in that system. Unfairness is an indicator of violence and includes people in positions of authority failing to take their proper responsibility for staff and their well-being. The whole point of hierarchies is to have specialised roles and with this, there are different orders of responsibility that accrue to different positions. A line manager of direct practice staff has a higher level of responsibility for their well-being than staff on the same level have to each other. Additionally, all members of the workplace have responsibility for how they act toward others. The example of care and fairness has to be shown by managers to avoid placing subordinate staff in torn loyalties between their boss, their peers and their own survival.
So we've got to page 43 and we're still in the chapter 2 on violence. And I'm going to stop this offering um, at this stage because the next section moves from a focus on mental health staff who are unfairly treated and experience lovelessness in the workplace and what that can mean for them to looking at um, mental health patients and their experiences of lovelessness and violence. So I'll, use, I'll come to that as the second part of Chapter 2 in the next podcast. I want to thank you for listening. And this is this is not easy to hear, I, I know. And I hope you're looking after yourself. And um, please, please uh, take what is useful for you. Leave what's what you don't agree with. Um, and I hope I hope you get something from having listened to this third podcast on my book, Brokenheartedness. Bye for now.